How many of you would admit to not having the fondest feelings towards taxes? We dislike seeing large chunks of our paychecks disappear before we even get them. We're shocked when we see the amount of sales tax on many of our receipts or bills. We hate it when politicians promise to lower taxes and instead come in and raise them instead. We don't enjoy the lengthy process of filing our taxes every year come April. And just hearing the words Canada Revenue Agency can send chills down our spines. We have a love-hate relationship with those brown envelopes that come year-round that seem to usually either give us money or demand money back from us. We are either reimbursed or robbed. I received one of these special letters from CRA about two weeks ago. Without going into specifics, they had decided to disallow a deduction I had claimed. I almost had a heart attack when I saw how much money they were demanding I return. Let's just say I can't remember ever receiving any kind of bill. Hydro, water, car, car repair, even mortgage. It was for even half this amount. After speaking with the CRA, we're optimistic that it was a mistake. But trust me, this did nothing to make me like taxes any more than I did before. And there is no love lost between myself and tax collection agencies. But I want you to keep our general despising of taxes in mind as we go to the scriptures today. It will help you see things better from people in Jesus' day perspective. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke 5, 27. We'll be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke together today. And as you find the passage, I'll pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word to study together, I pray that you would move among us and, and send your Spirit to really change our hearts, help whoever is listening to this message to hear from you through your word and be willing to be changed forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 5, we're still in the early stages of Jesus' ministry on earth. Jesus had been traveling around Palestine, teaching, healing, forgiving, calling his disciples. And at this point in time, he was in Capernaum, a little northern town in Galilee. He was making a big name for himself with his healings and miracles and teaching. People were coming from all over to see and hear him. Last week we saw Jesus even claim to be divine with authority to forgive sins. This was shocking to people. We read in verse 26, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Later on, we don't know whether this was the same day or just some time later, Luke just says, after this, Jesus went for a stroll in the streets of Capernaum. And as he walked, he saw a man he decided would make another good disciple. In verse 27, it says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. This is very similar to the way that Jesus called his earlier disciples, like Peter, James, and John. He gave a simple command, but a difficult command to obey, to follow him. And he left it up to the men to decide whether or not to follow him. Before we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, let's talk about this man, first named Levi. Who was Levi? Levi was actually better known by his other name, Matthew, 
as a kid, I always didn't like that Luke called him Levi because I was named after Matthew and I didn't want his name changed. But the two different names shouldn't bother us. We don't know whether Jesus gave him the name Matthew, like he gave the name he gave Simon the name Peter, or perhaps Matthew had two names all along, like a number of people do. But since we're in Luke today, we'll call him Levi, much to the chagrin of myself as a five-year-old. As his namesake, I especially liked the character of Matthew or Levi in the Bible. However, Levi was not a liked person in his day. People actually would have hated his guts. We know very little of Levi's history except for his occupation. And he wasn't the creator of Levi's genes. It says he was a tax collector. People collecting taxes for governments are generally disliked, as we've already seen today. But the tax collectors in Palestine were especially despised. Because first of all, think of where their taxes were going to. Taxes weren't sent to the local government or to the temple. No, they were sent to Rome. The Romans were despised since they were Palestine's invaders and conquerors. And the fact that the Romans were in power meant that their own nation was not. They were not free. They were subjugated. And they were bitter against Rome. Their hard-earned tax money went to further the control of this enemy. When the Roman Empire came in and took over most of the known world, they needed a way to collect taxes for the upkeep of their vast empire. So what they would do is hire some willing locals in every region. And the whole system was ripe for corruption, as people bid on the right to collect taxes in the first place, and then they were allowed to skim off the top and to defraud people. If not the most reputable occupation, it turned out to be quite the profitable Occupation. So imagine now how Jews would feel about one of their own working for Rome. The only thing worse than a tax collector or a Roman was a traitor who gave taxes to Rome. Jewish tax collectors were seen as traitors. They had betrayed their own countrymen, not to mention the fact that they were seen as dishonest and greedy criminals. They were swindlers, robbers, and most definitely considered sinners. Because they were seen as sinners who consorted with Gentiles, they were considered unclean. Some rabbis even claimed that if you let a tax collector to collector step into your home, your entire home, along with everything and everyone inside, instantly became unclean. This situation would be the equivalent of something like the U.S. taking over Canada by military force and then enacting huge taxes on the conquered Canadian provinces, then hiring willing Canadians to enforce the new taxes and letting those Canadians cheat the system, break laws, and get rich off their job while you just kept sinking further into poverty. How would you feel? about corrupt CRA agents stealing your money for a foreign enemy government. These men would set up booths on the streets where they would collect taxes. And people would go to these booths to pay their taxes under threat of the tax collectors sending Roman soldiers to their door instead. So you can imagine the vitriol directed Levi's way as he sat there smugly. And then Jesus came along, saw Levi sitting there. You might expect Jesus to start preaching, calling Levi out publicly 
for his sins. Maybe he could give a scathing sermon on greed or stealing or integrity or loyalty. But instead, Jesus did something that shocked everyone. He invited Levi to join him. Verse 27, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Jesus saw Levi and saw beyond who he was or who the culture saw him as. He chose to see Levi as who he could become if he let Jesus change him. And instead of calling out his sin, Jesus called him out of his sin. And that's key. Jesus doesn't just call out our sin. He calls us out of our sin. We don't know all the steps that led to this point in Levi's life. Levi must have known who Jesus was before this and at least have been intrigued by him. Maybe Jesus fascinated him and he loved what he heard Jesus was teaching. Maybe he was totally impressed by Jesus' power to heal people. Maybe as he saw Jesus approach him on the street, he hoped Jesus didn't notice him because he was ashamed of his past, regretting what he had done. Whatever led him to this point, when Jesus called him, Levi was ready. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. We learn something really important in these verses, something that is really at the core of who Jesus was and what his mission on earth was. And that's this. Jesus calls people to repent by leaving their sinful pasts. Jesus called people to repentance, which meant leaving sin behind them. Jesus calls people to repent by leaving their sinful pasts. This is what he did for Levi. And on the spot, Levi decided to obey. Jesus came, said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All Jesus said was, follow me. Believe I understood that the call to Jesus meant to call from sin. He couldn't become Jesus' disciple and keep doing what he was doing. If you think you can become Jesus' disciple and not change anything about the way you live, you're dead wrong. I recognize that for him, his whole occupation, his way of living would have to go. Criminal and sinful tax collecting were incompatible with following Jesus. So he got up, left his booth, his records, any money he had collected, and the Romans would have to find a new tax collector for Capernaum. Levi was out of the business. He resigned by abandoning his post. He left everything, he rose, and followed Jesus. Luke tells us he left everything. It was symbolic of getting up and leaving his sin behind. But for now, leaving everything didn't mean Levi left everything he owned. Because in the next verses, Levi still had his home and at least some money. But Levi had to be willing to give all that up too. Eventually, he would have to leave his home, his town, and even his life. Such was the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. We talked about following Jesus just a few weeks ago when we saw Jesus call his first disciples. And for us, it's likely that Jesus does not require that we leave absolutely everything behind. After all, we can't 
leave our spouse or children for the sake of the gospel. And we're not physically following Jesus in person around the countryside, so we don't have to leave our homes or our jobs or our countries necessarily. But we have to be willing to leave it all behind for Jesus. If he calls you to give it all away, or to go on the mission field, or to join the ministry, we have to be willing to do so. Otherwise, I'd say we don't really follow him. Are you ready and willing to follow him no matter what the cost? What if it costs you your current well-paying job? What if it costs you the security of living in the first world? What if it costs you living near your extended family? What if it costs you the house you've worked so hard to fix up over all these years? What if it costs you all the money in your bank account? If there is anything to which you would say, no, I can't leave that behind, then ask yourself if you're truly following Jesus or if something else has become an idol in your life, placed above him, Some things Jesus doesn't necessarily require us to leave behind to follow him. But our sins, they're non-negotiable. Our greed, idolatry, lust, apathy, envy, pride, sexual immorality, and the like, we are called out of those things. So if our job or money or comfort or security cause us to sin, we've got to leave them behind to follow Christ. If computers or phones or friends or places that you visit or locations cause you to sin, leave them. Just like Levi left the security and the riches of his sinful tax booth behind. And that's because following Jesus unavoidably includes repentance. Repentance literally means to turn away from sin, doing a 180, walking away in the other direction. Mark Driscoll defines repentance as a change of mind, so I was wrong that provokes a change of heart, I need to stop, which leads to a changed life. Repentance is definitely shown in the way Levi obeyed Jesus. He saw that his lifestyle was wrong, so his mind was changed. Then his heart changed when he decided he needed to stop. And then his life changed drastically as he got up, went the opposite way, and followed Jesus. Jesus was all about calling sinners to do this, and he is still all about repentance to this day. Calling people to repent was part of his core purpose on earth. He did so through his preaching and teaching ministry, but ultimately by showing sin's full cost by dying for sin on the cross. The cross really should be the fundamental motivator towards repentance. I know this was part of his purpose on earth because he says exactly as much in this passage. At risk of spoiling the end of the story, look ahead a couple verses to what Jesus says in verse 32. Verse 32 says this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. That's Jesus speaking. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to call sinners to repentance, to call sinners to follow him, to be changed by him, to become like him. We'll see what led him to say that, to say these words as we continue with the story in a minute. But I think we've got to reverse our negative view of repentance. I think we unconsciously see repentance as something that is difficult and costly. And so we see it as something that we hope we never have to do. I hope I don't have to give up that sin. That would be so hard to do. Or that would cost me so much to turn away from that sin. I don't know if I could do it. Maybe it costs you fun, pleasure, or friendships. That's true. However, these difficulties or costs are not negative at all. And they only lead to good. The only unfortunate thing about repentance is that we have to repent in the first place. Because we sin. See, true repentance, true repentance inevitably leads to joy. True repentance inevitably leads to joy. Repenting now only saves us from so much damage and hurt and sorrow caused by sin. Repenting by the Spirit's power makes us free from the bondage of sin. Repenting leads to more love and peace in our lives given by God. Romans 2 forces that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Acts 11.18 says the repentance leads to life. It leads to life. Only when someone truly repents is when they experience true conversion and transformation. J.C. Ryle says, Nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. That's what happens when you repent. It's wonderful. What did Levi do when he repented? Did he start mourning over what he left behind? Did he start regretting what he'd be missing out on? No. He threw a party. As the scene shifts, it shows Levi's continuing response. In verse 29, it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. He threw a feast in Jesus' honor. It says he made Jesus a great feast, a huge party, and he invited everyone he knew, whatever friends or acquaintances he had. Basically, he was telling his friends, come meet Jesus. He changed my life. I'm no longer going to be a tax collector. I'm done with that. I'm with Jesus now. Levi really was already becoming a disciple that made other disciples, multiplying. Jesus, meet my friends. Friends, meet my Jesus. When was the last time we did anything like that? When was the last time we were that excited to do anything like that? Now, Levi's friends would not have been the greatest friends in the world. He'd have hung out with people mostly on the fringes of society. And it says in verse 29 that the party was made up of a large company of tax collectors and others. 
reclining at table with them. So other people rejected or hated by the average citizens, other crooks, criminals, unreligious, and people of ill repute in the community. This were today, maybe it would be the drug dealers, or the alcoholics, or prostitutes, someone like that. I think it goes without saying that this is not where you'd expect to see Jesus hanging out. But Jesus surprisingly accepted Levi's invitation to this feast. This was scandalous. But this is very important to grasp. Because if you don't get this, I don't think you get Jesus' ministry. And I don't think you grasp the extent of Jesus' grace and the seriousness of repentance. Here's what we see in these verses. That Jesus was willing to be associated with sinners in order to call them to repentance. In order to call people to repent, Jesus was willing to be identified with sinful people. Jesus was willing to be associated with sinners in order to call them to repentance. Verse 29 seems to describe a happy ending to a great story. Jesus calls, a sinner repents, follows Jesus, and then throws a party to celebrate. Well, it would have been a happy ending, but it comes a bit bittersweet thanks to some party poopers. Playing the role of party poopers on this fine evening were the Pharisees and the scribes, the recognized religious leaders and teachers of the day. Verse 30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and these people were probably already shocked that Jesus would call Levi as his disciple. Calling blue-collar fishermen no problem was one thing, but calling white-collar traitorous crooks, that was another thing altogether. They probably would have expected Jesus to call people with more potential. Eager religious students sitting at the feet of rabbis, learning from them, aspiring leaders in the community the potentially rich or powerful. Maybe even some of these leaders hope that Jesus would pick them as disciples. So Jesus choosing disciples that were so contrary to expectations would have been shocking. But the leader's main beef in verse 30 wasn't with the questionable selection of disciples. It was with Jesus' questionable hangouts, who he spent his time with, who he associated with. And Jesus accepting the invitations to Levi's party was confusing and offensive to these leaders. Verse 30, they said, grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Eating and drinking weren't inherently wrong, but eating and drinking with sinners? Good Jews didn't do that. Rabbis didn't do that. So why was Jesus... These leaders wouldn't have actually been at the party. They'd never do that. But they were on the outside, looking in at the proceedings. And they saw this party, and all they could think was sin, sin, disgusting sin. It was a house full of notorious sinners. And they assumed all kinds of sinful stuff must have been going on in there. And even though Jesus would never have participated in anything sinful himself, he was there. And that was enough to cast judgment on him and his disciples. A few years back, when I was a single young adult, I was still living at home. And I was what most people would call a pretty good Christian kid. 
active in church, playing on worship teams, working on a degree with a Christian university. I had a pretty squeaky clean image. And one time, my parents left town on a trip, but I stayed home because I had to work. They also left some of my siblings in town with another family from church. One of the nights they were gone, I bought a ticket to go see a Christian band's concert. But this band was playing in a club or a bar in the market downtown. Now, I'm not going to debate the merits or concerns about a Christian band playing in a bar, okay? But anyway, I headed downtown for the show, and I found out that I had some time to kill, so I started walking around the market on a Friday night. And while I was walking around, I happened to see the man whose family was watching my siblings. He was working with the open-air campaigners, actually, preaching the gospel on the street. Picture the scene. And my first thought was, I'm going to go say hi to him. My second thought was, wait a second. What will this look like to him? He knows that my parents are out of town and that I'm home alone. And see, he sees me wandering downtown on a Friday night going to a concert in a bar. I thought, oh, I don't believe what I'm doing is wrong, but it may look very wrong. So instead of saying hi, I turned right around, walked the other direction, and hoped no one saw me as I went and enjoyed the concert. But here's the point of sharing the story. I was not willing to be associated with the places I was going or the people I was hanging out with. As a good Christian young man, I didn't want to be seen as a clubbing concert goer or whatever. I was afraid of the judgment of fellow Christians based on my associations. Then we come to this story, and Jesus wasn't afraid or worried about what others thought or assumed about him at all. He wasn't ashamed of where he was or who he was with or what they were doing. Uh, Jesus would have, of course, had to draw the line somewhere. We believe that he never sinned on earth. But Jesus recognized that certain things were not inherently sinful. It wasn't wrong for him to go to Levi's house. That was misguided legalism. It wasn't wrong for him to go to a party with sinners. That was made-up religion. Similarly, we've got to watch out for misguided religiosity that has no backing in Scripture. Don't get me wrong. If something is sinful, it is absolutely wrong. But if something isn't condemned in Scripture, condemning it ourselves now just creates legalism and self-righteousness, things that Jesus always harshly condemned. The religious leaders were condemning what and who they saw at this party. Meanwhile, They weren't seeing any of the sin inside themselves. Their pride, self-righteousness, judgmental thoughts, or selfishness even. We do the same thing. We really do. We see people's sins and think, that is disgusting sin. We forget to see the sin inside ourselves. All sin is disgusting in God's sight, not just the blatant or public stuff. And that's why it is incredible, it's astounding that Jesus, holy God in flesh, would be willing to be associated with sin. 
Think about it. If Jesus wouldn't associate with sinners, he would never associate with us because we're sinners. But just like he was willing to make Levi his friend, he's willing to make us his friends. I imagine this part of the story going a bit like this. Jesus and his disciples go to Levi's house and are enjoying themselves at this big party. The religious leaders follow Jesus there to see what he was up to. Maybe he'd do some more teaching or miraculous healings, and they get to see that. But when they saw what Jesus was up to, they were horrified. So they stood outside watching what was going on for a while. Then at some point, a couple of Jesus' disciples got near the door. Leaders recognized them. Hey, Peter, John, come here for a minute. So they pull them aside and ask, What in the world do you think you're doing? What is Jesus doing? Look who you're partying with. Don't you know that this is unbecoming of you? If you care about your reputations at all, you should get out of there now. Disciples probably got a bit confused at this point. Well, we follow Jesus here, and they didn't think we were doing anything wrong. So in their confusion, they go to find Jesus and tell him, Hey, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and scribes are saying that we shouldn't be here. Are they right? Should we leave now? What are we doing here? At this point, I think Jesus probably got upset stormed out to talk to the leaders. What are you accusing us of, you whining bunch of hypocrites? You don't understand. Times like this is why I came to earth in the first place. That's taking some creative liberties, but that's how I imagine this conversation going. The leaders were initially complaining to the disciples. As the New Living Translation says in verse 30, but the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? But the disciples didn't answer them. Jesus did. Did you see that? Verse 31, Jesus answers and says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus answered with an analogy, comparing himself to a doctor helping sick people. Imagine with me for a minute that you saw a big car accident take place involving several cars, definitely people that got hurt in the accident, no question. And so you pull out your phone, dial 911 as fast as you can. A couple minutes later, some ambulances come roaring in with sirens blazing. Now, imagine this. Okay, imagine if the paramedics jumped out of the ambulance, ran right past the accident, and started running over to all the cars that had stopped to watch the proceedings. And they start knocking on the window saying, hey, you okay in there? Can we help you? Do you need any help? Are you okay? What would you think? I'd seriously question the paramedic's sanity. Are you guys crazy? The hurt people are all over there. That should be obvious. We don't need you. They need you right now, desperately. After all, the paramedics were sent to look after injured people, not healthy ones. Well, Jesus says this world is desperately sick with sin. 
in urgent need of a doctor. And his message with this analogy was, sinners need me, so I'm going to them. He was all about reaching those who needed him most. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And yes, the religious leaders needed Jesus just as much as these other sinners, but they didn't recognize that fact. In their eyes, they were already righteous. May we never become so self-righteous we feel we don't need Jesus. And once Jesus comes into our lives, makes us righteous only through his blood, may we never segregate ourselves from those who still need him or ignore him. We need to ask, who do we spend our time with? Do we spend all our time with those who are already healthy? Are we ever associated with sinners like Jesus was? Are we willing to go to questionable spots to reach questionable people? We tell ourselves that Jesus wouldn't go and help those people. And we forget that without Christ, we are those people. And all the while, we keep the ambulance parked in our parking lot. As Jesus exemplifies in this passage, associating with sinners does not equal participating in sinful activity. We don't sin in order to reach sinners, but being with them, loving them, serving them, befriending them, those we absolutely can do and should do, following in Jesus' footsteps, all with the same purpose of his, of ultimately calling people to repent like Jesus did. We have been healed by the great physician. So let's start Thurmanism parties. Luke's account of this story ends there with Jesus' proclamation of his purpose. But Jesus' story doesn't end there. A couple years later, as Jesus drew to the end of his life, he did way more than just associate with sinners. He was accused of sins that he was not guilty of, sentenced to die for those sins. He identified himself with sinners on the cross, dying a sinner's death. He substituted himself for sinners. He took our place by taking our sins. But even more than that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus actually became sin on the cross. He became sin. Let that sink in. He became sin for us so that in his death, sin would also die. Jesus' death and resurrection was the ultimate call for sinners to repent, to leave our lives of sin behind, to die to ourselves, to follow him with our lives because Jesus was willing to associate with, identify with, and befriend sinners like us. It cost him his life. And following him may cost us ours. Are you ready? I'll tell you one person that this was true for. Levi. Levi's life was changed drastically once he began 
to follow Jesus. But after Jesus, his master died and rose again. His life radically changed again. Levi went on to write an account of Jesus' story under his other name of Matthew. We read it to this day. And then he traveled the world, telling people everywhere he went about Jesus. It's believed he went on a mission to Persia, modern-day Iran. After that, he traveled the opposite way to Ethiopia and Africa. And it was there that some people opposed him to the point of killing him. They thrust a spear through him. Many years before, Jesus had walked by Levi's tax booth and told him, Follow me. And those two fateful words set the course for the rest of Levi's life. They set the course for our lives. No matter where following Jesus takes us. No matter what it costs. And the end of our course is quite the party waiting for us. A banquet, a feast. And this is not where sinners invite Jesus into their house. But this is where Jesus invites sinners into his house forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for that day. We look forward to it. We rejoice in your salvation. We thank you so much for saving us and sending Jesus to die for us, that he was willing to associate with and identify with and substitute himself for us. Please help us hear the call to follow you with our lives and to heed the call, leaving everything that you require behind and pressing on to love you, know you better, and share you with others. In Jesus' name, amen.